Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. The growth of our science and education will be enriched by new knowledge of our universe and environment. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained. Thank you, everyone. Uh, this is always uh, an exciting thing to expose oneself uh, as a vice chancellor to your old way of doing thing, which is getting up and talking about space. But uh, of course, we're going to be talking about space in sort of a slightly different frame of reference uh, in thinking about the intersection of the moon and space with, uh, of course, all things human. Uh, which is all part of what I see this uh, program being today. So this year, as mentioned, does celebrate what was quite a monumental time in history. The fact that humanity did go to the moon 50 years ago, and the fact that we haven't really tried to replicate the feat 50 years later, despite the huge advance of technology, is something that we'll even think about a little bit later on uh, in our discussions today. The creation of the Apollo uh, spacecraft, that whole program, the moon landing itself, was a true work of literally hundreds of thousands of people. My notes said hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people. It is something that humanity has never tried to do at this scale again, wars being the only thing that we've ever done of this scale. And this is sort of a unique time of, of history where we took literally the wealth of the wealthiest nation to do something that was not defense related, although even this had defense aspects to it. The moon landing has shaped our world both in relation to the science that was required to undertake the endeavor and, of course, the flow-on effects that it has in our daily lives today. Uh, it has had an amazing impact as we think about all the cultural references to the moon landing that we'll explore at least a little bit here in just a second. It created history and, and therefore, I think is a fitting place to start as one of the most monumental human-confected pieces of history in my lifetime. It impacted the politics of the time, uh, the world economy, and fundamentally changed the way that people thought about humans, what were possible in doing. So as an astronomer, let's look at it from my point of view to begin with. So the moon has been with us for 4.5 billion years. And thanks to work initiated here at the ANU, and I'll talk a little bit about it later, a theory has emerged in which a, uh, a body we like to think of as Thea is its uh, name, although it's hypothesized, 
4.5 billion years ago, crashed into the newly formed Earth. And from the catastrophe that emerged, and Theo is thought to be about the size of Mars, it would have completely molten, made the entire Earth molten again. Debris would have uh, left the Earth, and around the Earth slowly congealing a moon of quite unusual size. Our moon is one of the largest moons in the solar system, and yet the Earth, as much as we love it, is kind of unremarkable. All of this happened in the infant days of our solar system, when the solar system had just come together, and there were probably many more planets than exist today, and they slowly congealed through things like this, Jupiter being particularly good at gobbling up large fractions of this early solar system. How we think about the birth of the moon is something that goes back to the beginnings of humanity across all cultures. And uh, at the National Gallery of Australia, uh, we have, uh, for example, a uh, program on Earth's sky uh, in which the following image about the birth of the moon uh, from an indigenous context is on display along with many other things. And uh, there are, it turns out, many, many stories across Australia about how uh, the moon uh, was uh, uh, born, uh, normally born out of the earth one way or another, a boomerang gone, gone awry, uh, other, other things similar to that. Uh, but as is said, uh, the moon has been central to humans across all cultures, all times. And here, of course, at ANU and in Cambry for more than 20,000 years, people have been looking up at the moon, like I suspect you will tonight if the weather has cleared at all, because the moon is full tonight, as Charlie has just reminded me. So the moon is something that is connected to Canberra because on that day of the 21st of July, 1969, out at Honeysuckle Creek, uh, the radio waves broadcast of that landing came through our neck of the woods and were broadcast around the world. And I believe we have uh, a few of the original trackers here today. I know, Cyril, are you here tonight? Cyril, good, raise stand up so everyone can look at you. Well done, Cyril, thank you. He didn't know I was gonna do that. Mike Din, are you here tonight as well? There we go, Mike here. Mike was actually the head of Honeysuckle Creek during this time. Uh, we also have the remarkable part of ANU in that our professor, Ross Taylor, uh, who unfortunately could not be here tonight, but sends his best wishes, was the person selected by NASA to go through and analyze the rocks which were brought back. And think about this, he had to go to a press release on the, 30, the 29th of July at noon with about six hours to analyze the samples after landing and tell everyone what was going on. He was chosen from anyone in the world and as an American, I can tell you Americans do not hire external professors unless they just don't have someone as good internally. And so 
Ross was there and was the person who led uh, these initial examinations, and Ross uh, continues here as emeritus professor at ANU, and is someone whose uh, measurements uh, brought out that foundations of the uh, uh, the birth of the moon by someone by the name of Al Cameron, who taught me at Harvard. Uh, and one of the things I had to do in hydrodynamics was to model the moon being formed from a collision uh, as one of my one of my my homework projects. But that is the connection I guess I have uh, to the moon in all of this. All right, so we have a great panel. Charlie has chosen his song, so Charlie, please come on. Charlie Lineweaver is an astronomer at Mount Stromlo Observatory, known for being a cosmologist. Charlie, I think that's going to be my seat. Uh, he's also an astrobiologist, and he is currently doing a MOOC for ANU, talking about the Are We Alone? All right. Uh, I provided advice for people not to do their PhDs with Charlie, but I've always been wrong giving that advice. Thank you, Charlie. Next up, we have Joan Leach. Joan Leach is a fellow American, as is uh, Charlie Lineweaver, and she's chosen Van Morrison for her song. She is the head of the Center for the Public Awareness of Science and has done a whole range of activities migrating from what was sort of a uh, a science degree meets humanities and then coming back into some melange which is uh, a mixture of both. And uh, Joan is uh, a relatively recent addition to the university, being here three or four years. And of course I have to have my own song, uh, which is this uh, Walking on the Moon. and. Uh, this is uh, my movie, and I'm going to tell you the reason I think of Walking in the Moon is I remember this video when I was a kid, and so whenever I remember the moon landings, I think of people bouncing around on the moon, and of course, 1979, the police came along when I was 12 and helped me remember that to song. Joan, Van Morrison, why'd you choose Van? So, Van the man. <laughs> 1970, A Marvelous Night for a Moon Dance. And sort of like that song, I just missed the moon landing. Yes. You know, bummer. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm a child of the 70s who was looking back at the 60s. And so there's a sense in which that kind of evokes for me just missing something, but still being very interested in it, really engaged in it, right? And, and, and I'm the person who is sort of consumed the stories about the moon. Okay, so I'm the consumer. I grew up with a joke that um, NASA is a PR company with a small space uh, program attached. <laughs> and so I, and I was consuming those narratives. And so something about Van Morrison, 70s, just missing it, that kind of hits it for me. NASA didn't used to be that way. <laughs> oh, that's what they all say. So, uh, yeah, so Joan, you are, as you said, what I would call is the post-Apollo generation, just recently after uh, that. So when you think of the moon landing, what did it look like to you from the rearview mirror? So, so I know, as I said, I know these images and the stereotypes, um, the moon rise, of course, um, the, the Earthrise, earth sorry, Earthrise, uh, and, and the picture of the Earth as the little blue dot. I, I, those images are, are powerful for me. But it's interesting, because I wasn't there, I think I got very interested recently 
in the 60s as an era of big science. And so when you start looking at the era of the 1960s and what we were talking about and what we were doing when we were going to the moon, I mean, you think Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolution is the most cited book of the, tw of the 20th century, right? Early 60s. Um, Silent Spring, we're thinking about the environment, early 60s. It's all kind of happening. We're doing huge projects, the Molehole Project. Who remembers the Molehole Project? Yeah, we're going to dig down deep into the Earth's mantle, figure out what the oh. Earth was all about. Huge projects, right? And so I think of the moon landing as, I mean, kind of as an academic looking back at all of these huge projects, big science, the 1960s. Um, and so I, I see it as, um, as one of many, but an exceptional one of many. Charlie, you're 10 years older than me, yeah. so you got to actually interact with the moon yeah. landing as a, uh, as a teen or a young, a young uh, as a child, a 10-year-old. So, yeah, um, I was in Canada at the time. My, my grandmother is Canadian, and every summer my family would go to a lake on Canada, and we would jump off of cliffs and throw rocks and catch fish and catch turtles. So we had a, for two months, and in July, that would be the middle of this summer vacation, my dad was a high school biology teacher, so he liked uh, all things nature. And uh, I remember we, we never watched TV during the summer, but for this thing, we pulled out a TV, a black and white TV about this big, and when you watched it normally on television, it was all as grainy as the image you showed of the landing. So we had a grainy image on a grainy TV coming from a, a transmission site maybe 300 kilometers away or something. So it was fairly... Uh, it, I mean, we're all there watching, we watch it. Oh, and it was interesting, like we saw there. And uh, we, I spent about, I didn't watch the whole thing because I think it went on for two and a half hours. So I, I was, and like I said, I was 14 years old or so. So I, uh, I said, wow, look at that, look at that. And then I jumped in the water. <laughs> I, so I it had a lasting the, impression the most, on you? The most important thing, yeah, it did, it did. It, I mean, I never did that for anything else. We never brought the television out for anything else. I had a lot of friends in Germany who, for the first time, got a color television just to watch this thing. Never watched TV before, but hey, landing on the moon, that's great. I'm going to get a color television. So, but I think the context, probably the biggest important context that you should know is that well, my parents were anti-Vietnam War people, and they went to demonstrations, so for a decade, the people of America were protesting against this war, and my parents particularly. So that was the context. The Vietnam War was the context for the moon landing, I think, and it's something you should remember. Okay, and it probably explains Canada as well, but anyway. Uh, so for me, uh, in 1969, I was two. I do not remember the 69 moon landing, but I remember more or less every subsequent one that occurred. And the memory was actually colored by something probably Denver really is not, I'm not sure if it's going to make sense or not here in Australia, but this, Tang. <laughs> so I, 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 was, I, I wanted Tang. And I remember convincing my parents, who had no money because my dad was a graduate student, and I remember eventually getting them to get me the Tang bottle with the moon buggy on the side. And that was like the biggest thing ever for me. Uh, so I would have been three, four, or five when this was going on, depending on which ones. I remember, definitely remember Apollo 12, 13, and I can remember for sure Apollo 17. I was very excited that they finally put a scientist on the moon in form of Harrison Schmidt, who was a geologist, uh, who, uh, since my father was a PhD uh, 
in biology, I thought that was important that they actually sent a scientist in. That was something that sort of solidified for me my interest in astronomy as a young age. I never thought I was going to be an astronomer, but I was very interested in astronomy at this time. Uh, I don't know. Joan, did it uh, kindle any interest in you in science, or was it just something that happened? I never got tang. I was never effective. Well, it's good. It's forty percent sugar. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, it's awful, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, it, it is truly awful, and my parents really <laughs> resisted, but they eventually did give in. Yeah. So, so I think what did get me interested um, is the kind of apparatus that came around the the project of going to the moon, right? Because around that has to be. I mentioned big science. There, ha there was an amazing amount of journalism. Okay, so some people look back and say, "Well, that was the golden age of science journalism." Uh, and, and so there's a, a lot of th that built then, and then as I grew up, I was the beneficiary of that kind of communication. So I think maybe as a second order kind of thing, it, it probably yep. did have an impact on me. Yeah. Well, you know, 1968 was the year of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's yep. movie, and that, that was, that's still my favorite movie. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is, isn't it yours? <laughs> It's okay, Charlie. We'll be okay. Um, Isn't that the most famous movie about space? Yeah, it, it is, and it shows all the... We'll talk at least a little bit about some of the cultural aspects, but just from the songs we're talking about, one would find it interesting that in 1970, and uh, yours was 71, moon songs, not probably a coincidence if you think about it. Uh, 83, clearly my song was an afterthought, but still inspired. So, Charlie, let's talk about some details of the Apollo missions. So, uh, we conveniently have a picture of the moon here. Yes, yes. Uh, so, Charlie is supposed to comment, as I knew he would, but now has forgotten. No, no, I haven't forgotten at all. So, now, see, this, this is the moon, and if you rotate it, Brian, please. Thank you. Now, this is the way the moon will look. If you go out tonight after this... So this is the way it looks in Australia. It looks the other way if you grew up where now, we grew up in the U.S. Can I have the... Now, now when, there are two images you can see in this picture. One is a, the rabbit, and the rabbit has a tail here, a body here, a neck here. Here's the head, and here are the ears. This is Nectaris, and right here is the Sea of Tranquility. That's where Apollo 11 landed, and that's where Neil Armstrong said, Tranquility Base here, the eagle has landed. And that's where he was standing, right there. And so tonight, you can go out, find this rabbit, find the head, and it's kind of like the left eye of the rabbit, just beneath this left ear of the rabbit. If you don't know about the rabbit, you see a man in the moon. It's a little bit harder to see here. The man in the moon, this is the mouth. Here are the eyeballs, and then we have some mascara here, and it's just under the, it's just in the right eye of the man in the moon. Thank you. That's uh, and just to uh, show you, I'm a details type of guy. Uh, that's what it looks like up close and personal. You can actually see uh, the little uh, remnant of right the uh, of Apollo 11 there. Oh, this is West Crater right here. I'm not yeah. quite sure the scale here. Maybe a kilometer or two? Yeah. All right. So, Charlie, you were also going to reflect at least a little bit about, uh, you know, our impression of the moon and its scale. So, uh, this is a at-scale image. Yeah, there. <laughs> so, yes, so here's the Earth. And here's the moon. And the moon is 1 80th the mass of the Earth. And its size is about 1 third of it. And so this is, here's where we are today. And when Houston was sending these messages, this is, this is 400,000 kilometers. The speed of light is 300,000 kilometers. So it takes like 1.3 seconds. So, so it says, Houston says, hello, Neil. 
And he says, the eagle has landed. And that's how fast the signals are going because we're at such a large scale. Now, if this were Mars and Earth, then it would be like something like uh, five times larger, much bigger. Anyway, we're starting to get into the range of distances where the speed of light becomes important. This is a 1.3 second distance. All right, okay. So uh, I've always thought sometimes it would be useful to have people on a 1.3 second delay here at ANU. <laughs> That be Brian. Who would that be? Or, or, well, I would like not to name names, or even a five-minute delay to Mars at some point. But uh, so I, uh, let's let's talk. Why did we do this? So Joan, what what were we thinking in 1961 that we would go through and try to land on the moon? What was what's what's the cultural context? Well, you know, I, I bet you there's as many answers to that as there are people in the room. I think I think it was you know I mean the war. Uh, obviously, you think about the way we framed the moon project afterwards, the race, the moonshot, and now we have moonshots in everything, right? We're going to, the cancer moonshot. So, so it was really a way of focusing, so Kennedy's idea, uh, and, and this is coming out of the 50s even. So if you look at the way that American science policy formed in the 1950s and Vannevar Bush and the great new America that they were building, it was kind of almost already seeded earlier that this was going to be a way um, of uh, America doing something special. Um, and of course, that ended up being, the, you know, in the context of the space race, um, where it was, you know, is it going to be us? Is it going to be Russia um, and, and the Cold War? Uh, so it's kind of overdetermined in a way that we were going to do this. And I think that goes some way, I mean, I don't want to preclude any later questions, but I think it goes some way for, for suggesting why these other suggestions of moonshot-like activity aren't working because those, those kind of preconditions aren't there yet. Um, that's my view. Charlie. Yeah, you know, I think the, the simple answer is Cold War. We Democrats, we free societies are better than you communist societies. America is better than Russia. You may have beat us in Sputnik, but we're gonna beat you to the moon. I think that was 95% of the motivation of the US and Kennedy declaring this. Uh, and I think any lack of our going back is because there hasn't been an equivalent Oh, we're better than you. No, you're better than you. Oh, we're better. Our system is better. No, ours. And I think when you have political tensions of that level, and they were quite high, then you drive this type of competition. And luckily, it was in a constructive way. It's kind of like sports. You know, it's better to, to have a sports competition than to have a war. But, but I'd still just point out, it wasn't just the space race, right? There were five or six other huge, big science projects at the same time. So I think there is something very specific about it. Um, and, and it is about, as I say, like earlier American science policy and space being the final well, well, I frontier. Think, but those, those other projects, I think when Sputnik happened, the U.S. said, <gasps> and, and so they said, we need to develop, we need to invest in science. And the, the amount of money that they invested, the U.S. invested I, from 57, 58, 59, it was, I think, enormous. And when you look at the people who are doing the controlling of the Apollo of spacecraft, you can see there are 25, 29, 32. These are all people who got the initiative, got science education because this gigantic thrust, we're gonna be more scientific than the Russians because of Sputnik. So I think whatever other science projects there were, it was also part of this flood of, we're gonna get a better scientific education. We free people are more scientifically educated than you communists. That, I, that's my interpretation. Yeah, so I would say that uh, my, my sense is, indeed, it was certainly part of the Cold War, and it was meant to be some sort of unifying uh, idea. I, I think if I would have been 
a scientist at the time, I would have literally just said, what has the president done? Because the enormity of doing that mission would not have been lost on the people at the time. Uh, but they didn't even know enough. I mean, I think one of the beautiful times is they really didn't even know enough in 1961 to know what a crazy ambition it was. Uh, and that's what the fact that it was actually achieved to me is quite remarkable, because it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. We don't uh, do it because done. it's easy. We're doing it because it's hard. Uh, <laughs> thank you. You will note that you have, you've, you've got three Australian-Americans up here uh, today. Uh, so the, um, so did, did you, how did it feed into the narrative, uh, uh, Joan, of just uh, of science and technology? So it was obviously there to underpin the Cold War and, and democracy is a better way of uh, than communism at, 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 you know, being human, I think, was the underlying, uh, you know, American exceptionalism. But how was it communicated with respect to, uh, you know, you talked about NASA being a PR firm. How did they actually, you know, how did it work in practice uh, for those seven long years? So, so it's really, there's been some lovely work done uh, looking at ephemera around the time. So this is sort of advertising for scientists to come um, and work at different spots in the US that were putting together rockets. So early Los Alamos, uh, things like this. And it's stunning. There were, you know, people go now to Santa Fe to, to look at the art because it's such a, it's, you know, amazing art. Um, these artists were making advertisements for scientists to come work at Los Alamos. Okay, I, and, I, and I give that example because it kind of shows how culture was saturated by images of space um, in all forms, right? Um, so yes, communicated at the level of um, job advertisements in the supermarket. Um, stunning, really, um, to give a kind of a, a flavor of where we were going to go. And of course, they could draw on the tropes of science fiction. And that is hugely apparent um, in, in the images of the period where you, know, you have people you know, hopping in those really pointed but kind of fat rocket ships <laughs> um, and heading up. Uh, so, so that imagery is just everywhere. Yep. So uh, we always talk about the, um, you know, the, the spin-offs that have come from this. So, you know, Charlie, anything that comes to mind? Velcro? Did anything useful come from this, really? Well, you know, it, it's hard to say. I mean, NASA will give you a long list if you Google spin-offs from the Apollo program. Uh, one of them is a chlorine-free swimming pools. Well, I think probably the most uh, important one may have been increase in the efficiency of solar panels, because that solar panels is something they had to develop. And also, there's some material that went into a spacesuit that is now part of the retractable roof of a Houston uh, stadium. So because it's lightweight and it lets light a little bit light through. And so there, there are hundreds of spin-offs, and all of them kind of semi-indirect. You're kind of pushing it a little bit to say it's a direct spin-off. Mylar is one of them. I remember going to East Africa, and I had a friend who loved high-tech stuff. Everybody else had a sleeping bag, and he had a Mylar blanket that was as thick as a piece of paper. And it kept him warm, but he, it didn't breathe, and so he was filled with sweat every morning. <laughs> so little problems with technology, but... I, I used Mylar for a solar filter to look at eclipses. That was my oh. use of uh, oh. Mylar. Any, any little uh, innovations that leap to mind, Joan? Well, I'd like to think of the social innovations. Okay. Um, you know, the, kinds of, the kind of human organization it took, as you pointed out, hundreds of thousands of people, 
uh, the communication technology. We don't talk a, a lot about that. But, but the kind of more mundane communication technology. I mean, if you think that you know, science has only been really around as a thing to do as a profession since the 1860s, and by this point in time, we can organize people in whether it's laboratory organization structures uh, across continents, across countries, right? That you know, and 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 make allegiances based on a scientific project. Um, I think those kinds of arrangements, the social arrangements that it took to get to the moon, are probably, I mean, one of the most amazing spin-offs from my point of view. So, Charlie, uh, I will see if you're happy, Charlie, or cynical, Charlie. Was it worth it? Well, yeah, sure, yes. I mean, this we're here today because something happened 50 years ago. And there are a lot of other things happened 50 years ago, and we're not here because of them. So obviously, it is important for world culture. Uh, I, got, uh, I got that TV out of the closet to watch it, and I was 15, and I, didn't, I was reading Arthur C. Clarke fiction. You talk about science fiction. I was reading Arthur C. Clarke science fiction novels uh, late at night, and I was in and plus this movie I told you about, 2001. Uh, but it was worth it for people who weren't desperately poor and who were engaged in this anti-communist, just uh, post-McCarthy era. I, I should point out that in 1961, I think when, when Kennedy made, hey, let's go to the moon, that was the year that the Russians sent a spacecraft on the backside of the moon, and almost every large structure on the backside of the moon is named after a Russian. So that's like, wow, we can't have that. We need more Anglo names on the back of that moon. So that also, so this, and also I should say that the Vietnam, I mean, Kennedy had a, had a choice. Hey, I'm gonna fight communism. I can do it by beating them to the moon, but I can also do it by the Vietnam War. So in some sense, this Vietnam War and the moon race were motivated by the same thing. This anti-communism, we're better than that. you are. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> was it worth it? Oh, well, I, I, you know, you could ask. Charlie doesn't really worry about the figures. <laughs> well, I, no, I gave you the answer. I think the answer is yes. And it's the same. Anytime you go exploring and you find something valuable, I mean, you could ask Isabel, was it worth it to give that money to Christopher Columbus? Well, if he had died, no, but he found the whole new world. And they could say, well, you know what, is Queen Isabel, you could have given all that money to the poor people that are surrounding your castle, and that would have done something for humanity. But this is a, a question you always have, and it, I guess it depends on short-term versus long-term. If you invest in the future of humanity, i.e. moonshot, or invest in the future of this kid who might starve in the next 10 minutes. That, I mean, how can you, long-term, short-term, I don't know. Joan, <laughs> is it worth it? <laughs> I don't know. We've, we've kind of concentrated on the positive stories uh, around this uh, so far, but um, I brought a poem <laughs> by an African-American uh, poet, uh, Gil Scott Heron. And it's a different narrative that was circulating at the time. Uh, much much of you were pointing to, Charlie, if we do this, there are opportunity costs. There are other things we're not doing. So this poem reads... Oh, wait a minute. They should point out that no, none of the people in these images of Apollo are African-Americans. No, uh, you you can right. see any. Maybe they're one out of a thousand, but mm -hmm. a very low mm -hmm. amount. Of so I think, I think this poem kind of reflects that, right? Um, a rat done bit my sister Nell, and Whitey's on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell, and Whitey's on the moon. I can't pay the doctor's bill, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still while Whitey's on the moon. And so I think it's a, it is a powerful, um, yeah, a comment on the opportunity costs of, of spending this much effort and money on one sort of scientific thing. And it's not just that, you know, it's not just that sort of um, 
uh, social relations called into question. Um, there are other concerns. Do you, do you have that slide? Yeah. So, so this is a wonderful um, artifact, uh, again, sort of in, in ephemera. Some of you might, does anybody recognize this? Anybody? This is actually an Australian comic strip uh, called Frontiers of Science that was produced out of uh, Sydney University's physics uh, department from 1961 to 1979. And it is a great way, the purpose of it, of course, was to bring science to people who didn't know about it. So it is a fantastic way to look at um, the big science projects of the 1960s and how they were talked about here in Australia. Um, so it's, it's sort of my guide. So this strip here was drawn um, in early 1962. We hadn't been to the moon yet. But already, there are alternatives, okay? And we're even publicizing that Kennedy and his moonshot might have it a bit wrong, and even maybe Kennedy is suggesting we might have bigger problems here on Earth, like water, right? This is 1962. So I think there were sort of um, alternate discourses to this, let's go to the moon, right? There were concerns um, about social inequity here on Earth, and also the problems that were starting to become very apparent even in the early 60s um, that also might need our attention. So uh, the moon landing was, you know, this big climax to this amazing uh, space race. Uh, and it, uh, so it, you know, had its sort of four years in the, in the sunshine, so to speak. Um, but it's something, if you think about it, since it goes back to time immemorial, literally to people thinking about the moon 80, 100,000 years ago when humanity uh, emerged. Uh, so after these millennia upon millennia of people thinking about the moon and dreaming about, was it, you know, what was the sense in, in, your, in your view was it anticlimactic to actually get there and say, oh, okay, we've been there, done that, and reduced it to a few bags of rocks and chemical elements, and did it take the mystery out of the moon, or do we think the, the science replaced that? So I, I, think, it's, I think it's a mixed, mixed story. Um, there's, there's some very interesting research been done about um, the, the serial televised nature of moon landings, right? So after they went to Apollo 11, <gasps> very exciting, you know, on a, on a nice edge, you're watching it grainy on grainy, very exciting, um, and, and you watched, what, what, 30, 40% of it and then jumped in the lake. Mm -hmm. But by the time we got to the second and third and fourth televised uh, moon landings, people are a little bit, so ratings drop. Yeah. Um, and, and, that's, and that's quite clear. It, does, it, it doesn't have that immediacy in terms of the space race. But I would point out, we're going to Mars. And it follows very much that kind of same narrative of um, you know, something humanity can do all together, um, et cetera. So, so I, yes, I think there, is a, there was fatigue um, and, and the, in, the interest of the um, original moon landing extreme. Um, but I think we re, we've been reproducing that narrative and reproducing that narrative, and that's what we're doing uh, with the Mars um, stuff now. Charlie, your well, sense? What was the question? <laughs> Anticlimactic getting to the moon. Oh. Did it take the mystery no, out of the moon, I, or do you think? I think for poets and huma humanities people, probably yes. And for scientists, absolutely not. The interest in the moon went more and more and more. And as you find out more about something, you get more and more important questions. So the scientists say, oh, this is great, this is great. And Nixon says, wait a minute, we've already beat the Russians. Let's turn off the tap. And so Nixon said, hey, the anti-communist aspect of beating them is already gone. That motivation pff, 
like here, that most people are not scientists. Scientists says, oh, we're going to find out this and this, and then we're going to find out the origin of the moon, then we're going to find out the origin of the earth, and maybe we'll f even find evidence for the origin of life on the moon, because in some sense, the moon is the earth's attic. When something hits the earth four billion years ago, when life started here, a piece of, lots of pieces of the earth flew up, landed on the moon. The moon's surface is, doesn't have water, it doesn't have a hydrological cycle, doesn't have many plate tectonics, so it's like an attic. It's very well preserved. So I think we are going to find the best evidence for the origin of life on this planet from going to the moon. And many other questions like that, the moon can tell us about, and scientists' interests were there, but how, what fraction of the world is a scientist? I don't know, but what fraction of the U.S. population were anti-communists? I don't know, 60% or something, I don't know. Scientists, 2%, I don't know. So, not anticlimactic, certainly from the science side. I no, mean, I guess no. what I've liked to see is the emergence over the last 50 years, where the moon, the moon has gotten romantic again, because we've been there, but it's sort of a piece of history that is very romanticized now again. And, you know, I guess uh, just getting back to the legacy, one of the things that if you look at the cost of it, and this is just... Uh, I, I was talking to my wife, who's the economist in the family, and uh, this looks, this is the investment. Uh, and non-defense, that big bump there is almost entirely the space program. All right, so, but look at what's happened. Uh, the non-defense was down in trivial amounts, about what Australia is, a fraction of GDP is investing right now. And it reset the dial. It created uh, a change of how the most advanced country in the world thought about uh, itself as a nation, investing in research and development. And one would say that that probably has had very profound consequences for the economy and technology. And this is showing the spend in NASA. But, you know, NSF emerged from this. And I remember my father, a biologist, an environmental biologist, said, well, ultimately he had a job as a biologist because of the space program injecting all of this money into the National Science Foundation as the collective effort uh, for the United States to get around this. And indeed, the numbers are as 400,000 people uh, at the peak involved in that funding. It was a huge amount of money, peaked at 5% of the US expenditure on anything in getting to the moon through, through the NASA bit. So it was a huge expenditure, and economists really struggle with this, and it's always good to talk to my wife when she's struggling, not saying I don't know an answer. They're almost as bad as physicists. Uh, but if you really do look at, it really was a step change about how the U.S. invested in R&D. Uh, and uh, this is a really interesting book uh, by an economist at the LSE, uh, Mariana Mazzucato. And she talks about the entrepreneurial state, and she uses the moonshot as sort of a single time that humanity took something that really required the entire economy. It required all, you know, you talk about the communications. It talked about hundreds of thousands of people doing something. It was not defense-related. Uh, it was obviously motivated by this, this uh, national identity. Uh, and it really turbocharged, as near as they could tell, the U.S. economy. It's a huge amount of stimulus, but it generated all of these spin-offs, not just in products, but in ways of thinking, investment, 
in all sorts of things. It created the modern U.S. research-led university, uh, if anything did. So it's kind of a unique time because you said, well, we've done other moonshots. We've never done another moonshot. All the other moonshots have been very much half-hearted attempts to do little things. Let's solve cancer. Oh, after you, this is hard. We won't do it anymore. I, I bet uh, the pyramid building was a moonshot for the Egyptians. Uh, it probably was uh, a crazy thing to do. I'm not, and it probably did create a whole bunch of technology that went along with it. And uh, it worked for the Egyptians back then. They weren't very nice to their people, but they were... The Parthenon for the Greeks? Yeah, okay, so you would say, the, I don't think the Parthenon is quite the scale of Heracles this. Heracles used almost the whole treasury of the Athenian government. Of the Athenian <laughs> government to do it. But it's not something. And so the, 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 the thought is that is coming up with a moonshot, a real moonshot you get behind, is not necessarily a bad thing. And if we're going into an unstable time for humanity, which I would say my uh, people from uh, the uh, various parts of the university are saying it's unstable, having some sort of collective uh, thing like a, a new moonshot, and I'm not sure if Mars is it, but think of something else, I would say renewable energy might be a good target right now. Finding the aliens. Finding what? The aliens. Finding the, uh, yeah, that's a long one. That would really unite uh, humanity. <laughs> That would that's a long moonshot. So, really. who knows? Who but, knows? But I you guess guys don't know. You're if just we look at the moonshot, you know, we have a very in the Western world, very glorified view of it. But did it bring? It was meant to push the Russians down, but did it? Was it divisive? I don't think or it was meant to did it actually bring the world together? I don't think it was meant to push them down, just to beat them. I mean, it's like an Olympic competition. All right, well, our athletes are better than your athletes. You don't think it was meant to demoralize them, to show them we're better than you? It's what Jesse Owens did to Hitler. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, yeah, um, so you people would say, can beat your people. You're not the superior race. I mean, that's so you don't think it was divisive at all? I, I don't. Uh, when you... The Vietnam War was much more divisive than anything about the space program. The space program was a constructive competition, and hey, we won, but it's a lot like when your football team winning, beating another one. You're not putting them down, you're just beating them. And, and it doesn't create so much, it's not the hatred, it didn't in, induce the hatred that wars do. So, uh, Joan, what's your view? So, I, I just, I, I can't answer it for everywhere, but looking at the comic strips over that 10 year period, what's really interesting to me is how Australians perceived the uh, space race, or the race to the moon. Um, and it was, it's very clear from those comic strips, they give even kind of coverage to American developments and Russian developments. So you get this picture of Australia sitting there like, mm, not sure we're ready to pick a winner yet, you know? Um, and so this notion of divisiveness, not sure, especially sitting here from Australia. I mean, obviously the connections back to the US were strong. Um, and probably stronger, but in terms of the popular rhetorics of who's getting to the moon first, it, it didn't seem divisive at all. Rather, it was kind of, you know, Australia sitting back watching. I mean, in, in popular culture. Now, I think it probably looked very different from inside the scientific um, uh, world. So, Joan, how has the moon changed our sense of ourselves in relation with the cosmos? I mean, if you think about the moon landing, you know, is it, does it made where Omniscient, you know, uh, sorry, omnipotent, or uh, what's your sense? So it's it's this feeling. Um, so I'm I'm showing you uh, an image from uh, an artist here at the ANU, uh, Beck Big Wither, who's here somewhere this evening. I can't see where she is here. Wave her hand. Is she here? She's got to be here somewhere. 
I saw her earlier. Anyway, um, this, is, this is her Im image. She works with photo collage. And I think it's an interesting kind of commentary. We see there he is, Neil, in front. And we have Honeysuckle Creek um, in the background. And it's this, this kind of, I don't know, it, it's both big and small. Yep. Um, and there's a, kind of a, there's a wonderful quote um, from Michael Light, another artist, who says, the space traveler is both gigantically empowered Right? And that's that heroic image of you know, the space traveler. But also aware at every turn of his utter inconsequentialness. You know? Because there's this, uh, the vulnerability. And there's something about the way um, Beck has organized this with um, you know, that, the vulnerability in his face that really does speak to this. So I think there's, you know, there's a sense in which, oh, we're so powerful, we made it to the moon. A, a, giant, you know, a giant step for mankind. But on the other hand, um, looking back at the Earth, oh, we're kind of small, aren't we, um, in this vast, you know, the vastness of space. So I think it, it both empowers and completely lets us know that we're pretty, we're pretty mini <laughs> in the scheme of things. And one of the interesting things about the confluence of the moon landing and cu um, culture is that, in some sense, the culture that emerged around the idea we're going to the moon sort of helped influence some of the ways we approached getting to the moon and indeed yeah. Yeah. Uh, science in general. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about this. Yeah. This is an area of specialty, I think, if you <laughs> yeah. so, so this is, you know, we talk a lot about spin-offs, yeah. but then there's the precursors, the way in which science fiction and other techniques kind of help us imagine what we're going to do next. And uh, a wonderful um, bit of work um, uh, by a colleague who works on what he calls diegetic prototypes. And those are the things that appear in films um, that kind of predict what's going to happen later. So um, there's a famous example of the, you know, the, the touch screen where you can move text all around that appears in a film and we don't actually have it until four years later. Well, there's quite a bit of that, I think, going on with the moon because there's a lot of imagination that has to happen. And so if you look at drawings, you know, even from the 1920s and 30s of rocket ships, right, the, 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 they're changing and they're becoming more like the rockets that we actually use. They're not reflecting reality, they're actually kind of moving toward um, what, what ultimately happens. So it's really interesting to think, yes, spin-offs, but what, a, what in our imaginations is enabling certain things to happen? Um, and, and I think that, that would be a good question for us you know, right now when we're thinking about Mars. Um, and because it's, you know, it's, it's popular cultures all, all over it, right? We've got films that are telling us what it's going to be like for people to travel that long in space, what they're going to need. You know, it's that way of imagining. And so um, several of the Apollo um, astronauts talked about how, as you were saying, um, there's a, they didn't know what they didn't know. <laughs> um, they were frightened of certain things, but not of others. And, and it's interesting, they said it was science fiction that helped them imagine the things that they really should be afraid of. And so that, that imaginative work, I think, is really uh, quite, yeah, quite marked in, in when we look at Apollo, the Apollo program. So Charlie, you're obviously a big fan of 2001. Mm. Uh, how have you seen that idea of science fiction contribute to the moon landing and the whole era of science fiction that emerged in that time? I mean, there was a little bit before, but... Well, let, let me answer another question. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Senator. <laughs> no, I, I was thinking about your question to Joan about what the moon landing did. And I think for about 500 years, people have been finding out more 
about their place in the universe. So we found out that, the, for example, the Copernican theory, the Earth is not at the center, the sun is at the center, and the Earth goes around. And that was like a tremendous blow, and Galileo and the church had to fight about that. And then along comes Darwin and says, you know what, human beings, you're an animal. You should know that. And then Freud comes along and says, you don't even know what you're thinking. Your, your subconscious brain is the, you're this big, and your conscious brain is that big. So it, when you go and look at Earthrise and, see, and even go further and see the pale blue dot that Carl Sagan talked about, you're seeing like, whoa, whoa. You're getting more and more out of the center and more and more anonymous. You're not at the center. You, everybody grows up thinking, hey, I'm the center of the world. And they say, wait a minute, there are other people. Oh, wait a minute, there are other, the Earth is not the center of the universe. Wait a minute, the sun isn't even the center. But, you know, there's a, you know, Alfred Lord, Alfred Wallace, the guy who co-invented Darwinism, he wrote a book in 1903 that said the sun was the center of the galaxy. And so it was still consistent with some of the, but, you know, five years later, no, the sun is out here and the center of the galaxy is over here and the sun is in the boondocks. So it's, I think the whole, the whole the short description of science is making humans more anonymous and this is one of the things that did it, those pictures of this Earth so far away. And you can get further, you can get so far away that the Earth doesn't show up, right? And you can just see the sun, make the sun a tiny, tiny blip. We haven't gone that far away yet. The sun is still very, very large from any spacecraft, even Voyager 1, that's the furthest, or Voyager 2, that's the furthest now. But sometime soon, maybe uh, when it gets further, it'll turn, I don't know if they have any plans to turn Voyager around, take a picture of the sun so it looks like a star. That's something that also that we had to discover, that the sun was just a star. It's not the sun and then the stars. The sun is a star. So there's been a giant progress of, I call, you could call it progress, but you could also say, hey, you're, you're getting slapped around. Your, your ego is getting slapped around. Your humility is, has got to, I think it's important to be more humble about our place in the universe, and this is part of it, and I think I like that. Multiverse is another story, right? Not tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess when I look at it, uh, it was a whole range of science fiction that emerged during this time. And so uh, the, the thing that really affected me was Star Trek, the original series. And I think about, you know, they had these amazing doors that opened when you went near them. And then four years later, they appeared. And then there were these clamshell phones. And that took 25 years to appear. And they've come and gone. The doors still exist. So there's all these little things that uh, exist. And I'm proud to say the tricorder, uh, we have Professor Daniel Shattuck here, basically has created the tricorder uh, and has just got $11 million worth of uh, VC funding to take it to market. And, but, you, know, you want to tell us what that is? What, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a tricorder. It's the thing that allows you to measure anything, hooks up to your iPhone, and allows you to make precision measurement uh, and it's an amazingly obvious thing to do, born out of the LIGO experiment. So you are seeing, once again, these ideas manifest themselves uh, on a regular basis. And Star Trek existed, and I think, you know, 2001 existed in this era because the, the, the landing on the moon sort of supercharged thinking about science fiction and other things that emerged, all sorts of things, you know, came. Silent running, if you think about that movie and the environment and the size of the earth, the context, we live on a finite earth, things like that emerged. Uh, fun, fun fact. Soylent green, some other good ones. people. Uh, <laughs> fun fact is that we went to the moon before we figured out how to put wheels on, uh, on suitcases. It's true. I, 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 it's true.
400,000 people, a few people get credit. It's largely, uh, you know, people who look like me and you, Charlie, and people who don't look like you, Joan, and don't look like anyone uh, more diverse uh, than the three of us. Uh, so is it a collective achievement? We've seen some movies now come out and, and talk about that. But can you comment on what you would describe as some of the less visible people who were part of this? I mean, there's been a bit more interest in, in the last 10 years or so in sort of astronauts' wives um, and, and what they had to go through. This is another image by uh, Beck Big Wither that kind of, I, I, find, I find this one interesting too because there's a steeliness, right? But these women are also beautiful. There's a femininity. Um, so very, very complex. Um, but talking about uh, families, uh, what, what, they, what they had to go through. And, and you can see in recent astronaut stories, um, families are getting a much bigger look in, you know, um, which, which is interesting. Um, so that's one set of people. I think there's also a huge interest, and it's so nice to have some of the trackers here tonight, um, in the people who did so much work, right, to generate, um, you know, the knowledge that we needed to get there. Um, and they were able to share it. Um, and so I think there's a lot of interest there. And I note, um, even in the ACT, especially in the ACT, um, there are awards given, um, sort of grants now given for space heritage here in Canberra, uh, which is fantastic. So we're starting to see ourselves as wanting to collect those stories, wanting to um, pay our respects to those stories. Um, and that is going to start, I think, broadening our understanding of actually what it takes to do big science of this scale. Yeah. So, Charlie, astronomy is the same thing. You tend to have a couple people get lots of credit and hundreds and thousands of people who are underpinning. How do we deal with this? As I mean, is this okay? Uh, I, well, this is like the Nobel Committee trying to figure out whether you should give three Nobel Prizes or the Nobel Prize in physics to a whole group. That's something they're trying to work out. I thought you were going to ask me about other, you know, un, un, unsung <laughs> heroes of this. And I think because we've portrayed this as America, I think Werner von Braun should get a lot of credit for what happened here, and particularly the excellent education he had in the 20s and 30s in physics and rocketry in Germany at the time. So I'm not quite sure that America would have been able to go to the moon if it weren't for Werner von Braun. Right, and so you, uh, okay, so is uh, Tom Lehrer's song <laughs> on him? Uh, well, that's what, uh, is but that notice that's, that's all you remember. He said, hey, this guy did incredible, incredible work. He's largely responsible for the Saturn V. And then what do you remember? Tom Lehrer's song about him, and he's learning Chinese, says Van yes. von Braun. So that's the Tom Lehrer song. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but it's kind of a sardonic thing about, it's kind of disses him. In, in the uh, no, it's, he got sued, <laughs> I think, uh, about that. Yeah. Charlie. Why have we never gone back to the moon? Why has humanity not gone back to, to the moon? Because we're not as anti-communist as we used to be, and we'd have, we'd end them, and, well, the Russians didn't, let me say, we will go back as soon as China gets rich enough to be a competitor, and then China and America will say, okay, I'm better, no, you're better, I'm better, and then they will both have a space, a new space race to go back to the moon, and then maybe a space race to go to Mars, maybe some other country will get rich, and then these, the two richest countries in the world will say, I'm better, no, you're better, and then, and then we'll find the aliens, and then humanity will come together, and then we'll have... <laughs> A human project that will try to beat the aliens at something that's hopefully He's constructive. He's always pitching. This man is always All right. pitching. Well, life is out there. We maybe. I mean, this is something that you. I mean, we're talking about frontiers here. The moon yeah. was a frontier. Well, you're front you're going back to your 2001 heritage, and on that it's thing, not there's, going there's, back. there's going to be an obelisk. It's going forward. <laughs> Joan, why haven't we gone back? So, 
I mean, I th I've, well, again, there's a, a bigger story here, but I, how, how interesting is the moon, scientifically? Well, it's not bad. It's wonderful. It's, well, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. You could spend your whole life there. And, and we still have rocks here on Earth that I understand that we're just a exploring right now. Mark Norman at ANU has rocks from every Apollo mission, and he's the ANU specialist in dating these rocks. Yeah. I guess, you know, look, I, I, think, I think part of it, it was a rhetorical failure. Um, on the, on the Wait, what does that mean, rhetorical failure? Scientists didn't persuade us. Persuade that, you? You're one of us, you, so. <laughs> you need an anti-communist fervor to be persuaded. Now, let, let's leave the communists alone. No, um, that's part of it. <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think there was um, a rhetorical task um, after uh, the Apollo missions to say, okay, this is dangerous business, but it's offset, once you don't have the communists, it's offset by something else. And that offset has to be something so spectacular, you know, um, and I, I think people moved on. Cancer became a bigger issue. The environment, I mean, in the 70s, you know, the environment was looking really, really important. You know, it's, it's, it's us who stuffed it up, right? It looked like there in, in, in that decade, um, people's, people's attention shifted. Um, and I don't think the case was made in a very convincing way that um, that, that was necessary, that it was necessary to go back. I would argue that our ecological sense was really heightened by seeing the Earth as an island and say, whoa, this is like one planet we have here. Let's take care of it. We're but, polluting but once the you see it. that once, um, it kind of makes that argument. It, it so turns I, into I, an ecological movement. Yeah, I mean, to, to my mind, I'll be honest, it's really expensive to go to the moon. And uh, we just, you know, the U.S. was an incredibly rich country in the 1960s. And I, I actually think it probably comes down to that. And the, one of the reasons I think we'll go back to the moon is because it will become cheap enough to do without too many problems based on the new technology. Or it becomes a jump off for somewhere else, or to do something else. Well, so, so, yeah. so you're right, and it'll be part of a bigger thing. And I would be, I, I actually expect it'll be someone like Elon Musk or someone who does it, probably kills a few people along the way, it's hard to know. But my guess is it, it will, might well be uh, uh, an entrepreneurial type private money that does it, but we'll see.